This is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco. We're at 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanem. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. We have some amazing guests in studio today. And the title of today's show is really going to be something interesting. It's called The Balfour Declaration and Reims Menaish. That's right. But and it is the 100th anniversary. We shouldn't call it an anniversary or a commemoration, but it's 100 years since the uh, signing of the Balfour Declaration, when Lord Balfour wrote a letter to uh, Rothschild in, 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 the, uh, in Great Britain, announcing that the government of Great Britain was supportive of the idea, the concept, of a Jewish state in historic uh, Palestine. So that's 100 years. That's right. Uh, some background information to our listeners. Of course, you know, as you've mentioned, the Balfour Declaration, which is Balfour's promise in, in Arabic, really, was a public pledge by Britain in 1917, declaring its aim to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. The statement came in the form of a letter from Britain's then foreign minister, uh, then foreign secretary, Arthur Balfour, addressed to Lionel Walter Rothschild, a figurehead of the British Jewish community. And it was made during World War I, 1914 to 1918, and was included in the terms of the British mandate for Palestine after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Many people say that that was the birth of the progressive colonization and occupation of historic Palestine, Jamal. That kind of set into motion the historic uh, process of colonizing and occupying. And the ethnic cleansing. Yeah. So, so in essence, the Balfour Declaration is the green lighting of the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from their homeland. So in that context is, is the reason that we're having the show today. And, uh, you know, we ha we, we've talked quite a bit about all of the manifestations of that of that occupation of historic Palestine, its colonization, and its ethnic cleansing. Today, however, we're going to be talking about resistance to colonization in a very kind of creative way. And we're very fortunate to have in studio with us um, two amazing, amazing guests. Reem Asriel. And Lara Kiswani, who is the executive director of AROC, um, one of the probably, I would say arguably in the Bay Area, one of the most important activists and uh, communities in the Bay Area in terms of Arab organizing in Northern California, maybe even beyond, right? So we named the show the Balfour Declaration and Reims Menaish, and people will wonder yeah, why Reims Menaish and what this has to do with Resistance. the Balfour Dec Declaration, which well, is well, really... It, it, it has a lot to do with it, but rather than me or you talk about it, we're going to let Reem and Lada talk about it. So uh, Reem and Lada, welcome to Arab Talk. Thanks, Thanks for, having for having us. So let's, let's talk about kind of a larger issue, which is the way you, as, as a food connoisseur, mm -hmm. businesswoman, activist, I mean, I don't even know how to articulate so many hats that you wear, Reem. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your understanding about the relationship between food, history, and activism. Sure. For folks who are not familiar with Reams, 
uh, Reams's and Arab Street Corner Bakery uh, based in Oakland, California. Um, we specialize really in the warmth of Arab hospitality through um, the offering of fresh baked bread, which for Arabs and Palestinians, but particularly for Arabs in the Arab world, um, bread represents a lifeline of our history, right? We tell um, our cultural narrative and our history through our food. So when you take our food away from us, uh, you take that narrative away from us. It's kind of like a cultural erasure. And it's very part and parcel to um, the ethnic cleansing campaign of Palestinians. And mm. so, you know, when I came to the revelation that we needed uh, spaces, particularly here in um, the U.S., uh, where uh, that ethnic cleansing and that cultural erasure was extending beyond our homelands into uh, a mainstream here, right in the belly of the beast. And you know, we know that the U.S. has its hand in um, the dismantling of our countries in the Arab world. That it was very important for me to bring that narrative back and, right. and to reclaim uh, my food as as Arab, first and foremost, and then uh, as saying these are Palestinian foods, it really bothered me sort of being um, in the scene. You know, I'm very passionate about food, but what, what brought me to Reims was my passion for community. I wanted um, a tool, an organizing tool, if you will, because that was my background, mm -hmm. um, to have people, to speak to people at the very human level about what this food represents and what better way to do it through the, than through the senses, right? Everybody can relate to food as um, a tool of survival, right? right? And a tool of sustenance. So that was really why I made an intentional decision um, to name a bakery with a tagline that said Arab street food made with California love. You Nowhere in this country do you see Arab, no. Arab street food being popularized as, you know, as the posh word, it's actually considered a bad word. And I wanted to take that word and say, no, it's going to be mainstream. It's going to be cool. And I'm going to lead with it. So. And, and somehow, I mean, obviously opened a very successful business mm -hmm. and the crowds have been very supportive. But somehow you've also attracted the wrath of uh, Zionist organizations who have been targeting your business and sending people to harass customers and demonstrate. Uh, when did this start happening? Oh, 70 years ago? Yeah, <laughs> since I was born. 100 years, <laughs> 100 years right, right. I remember, you know, when we were opening Reams earlier in May um, and we started to get targeted uh, mostly through online trolling and people accusing me of being a terrorist and a terrorist supporter, you know, I sort of chuckled thinking to myself, well, you know, this isn't the first time I've been called a terrorist, and unfortunately, probably not the last time. And um, it's just indicative of the climate, uh, the climate and the political context that we live in today, mm. where anything, any sort of expression of Arab cultural identity or Palestinian cultural identity, if you will, um, is equated with um, these these attacks. So right. it didn't matter what I did. It was um, not a surprise that um, I am a very outspoken Palestinian um, activist. I'm not just a baker, you know, and I'm very, I lead with that. Um, people know that. That's what attracts people to Reams because they know it's more than just a bakery. Mm -hmm. It's a community space. It's a movement space. So anytime a Palestinian makes themselves uh, vulnerable, uh, out there they make themselves vulnerable to these attacks right. um, and Zionist forces are very uh, vigilant they don't have much time on their hands in this country 
Um, and so they um, they started to attack me online um, and you know, attempted basically a campaign to isolate me from all the partnerships that I've built. You know, the scariest to think to them, for them, I think what was really scary for them was that I was, you know, Reem, Reems is sort of like a, uh, you know, we call it sort of the Trojan horse effect, you know, like we don't beat our politics over people's head when they walk into our doors. Right. But something transforms in people right. when they walk through Reem's doors. They walk out of our doors or from our farmer's market experience, knowing something a little bit different about Pal who Palestinians are, what the Arab world is all about, and what the truth is. And that consciousness raising is very threatening to I, them. I think it is so, absolutely threatening, Reem. I think yeah. that's spot on. So it's it's two things. It's It's threatening because it's such a positive progressive message that is being sent right. and also you've made connections with other communities right. displaced right. Uh, communities in the bay and that is also very threatening to yeah. pro-israel forces so yeah. but it wasn't just online stuff that they came mm. after you with no. and maybe you should talk a little bit about how it transitioned from online attacks to the yeah. physic to the physical realm which is really what we're talking yeah. about um, yeah, so uh, soon after they sort of barraged, you know, all of my social media and started to um, contact all my partnerships, they actually showed up to my physical space in the bakery um, starting in the summer, um, actually disrupted our business, uh, passed out racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic flyers speech, about yeah. hateful speech about me um, to walkers by. They actually attacked some of my customers physically um, attacked them. Yeah, yeah, I physically attacked them, um, and just made life really scary and miserable for myself individually because they were really targeting me as an individual, but then also my employees and my community. But sort of in response to those attacks, my community came out in full, you know, full gear, coming out to support Reams and to making sure that we were protected. We're, we're listening to the voice of Reem Asil. Reem is the the brains and the brawn behind Reem's. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, I don't know how to describe Reem other than as an amazing activist, baker, businesswoman, Palestinian uh, individual who's done amazing work. Uh, I want to kind of turf it over to Lada Kiswani, who's the executive director at AROC, because Lada... You're organizing and AROC's work in the community. You're in the middle of all of this, too. What's been your analysis of what's happening at Reams and why now? It's not so much why now. This has been happening for several years um, since and whenever there's strong Arab organizing, a strong Arab presence that's unapologetically um, anti-racist and in that light anti-Zionist, we face um, repression and targeting by Zionist institution and forces and individuals. So what we see at Reem, it's the same people that yeah. show up at all the pro-Palestinian protests. It's the same people that hound and troll all of us online and in person oftentimes um, for several years now. It's not a surprise, but what is interesting is in this political moment, the fact that they feel that they have the authority to do so. Mm. Um, we're in a climate where, you know, white supremacy is named, mm -hmm. where the people now understand the relationships and connections between Islamophobia and white supremacy and Zionism. Right. And the fact that these Zionists and pro-Israeli and pro-apartheid individuals and activists are showing up at a community space, which is how we see Reem, a movement 
movement space right. um, that both depicts the image of Rasmiya Oda, a Palestinian hero, wearing the button of Oscar Grant, right? Somebody that really reflects the cross-movement building in the Bay right. Area, the struggles against racism and oppression and state violence. This is a threat to them. And so they have put their eye on Reams, both because she's making a political impact, a social impact, and an economic impact, mm-hmm. right, in terms of raising awareness. And so we've seen this at AROC over the history of Palestine solidarity work in the Bay Area and across the country. Right. Um, it's no different. But this political moment gives us an opportunity to really raise awareness about the audacity and sort of the inherent racist nature of Israel and Zionism. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, I think uh, the fact that you are also in Auckland yeah. and close to a major college campus, UC Berkeley, uh, which has been a battleground. We've seen mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. demonstrations that they've had, the white supremacists uh, on campus, uh, the Milos and, and, and his ilk going there. Uh, I, I think that increased the attack on, and, and the focus on probably the only bakery of its kind mm-hmm. in, in the area. Not probably. It is it the is, only bakery of its kind. It is the only bakery in, of its kind in, in the area. Uh, my question is, uh, how has the community been responding? I mean, mm-hmm. are you seeing... Because we want to know like about whether we're getting a lot of support, not just orga- organizational like from Iraq and other, but, but the individuals as far as patronizing the business, as far as standing, you know, n- n- you know, on your side in response to these attacks. I mean, when Reem first made us, the community, aware of what was happening, um, right away we decided to make that public. We right. wanted people to know that this business, this community space was being targeted. And that only boosted up business. I mean, you can speak to that, but yeah. customers were showing up all the time. Oh, that's more, great. More, yeah, more in fact, l- when we have slow times, I joke that we should bring the Zionists back. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, more importantly, in this political moment, we saw what was happening at Reams as an opportunity to really practice our community self-defense right. work, our rapid response work, because we know this won't be the first or the last um, attack by Zionists and racists against people of color, against Arabs, against Muslims. So we formed a rapid response network mm. that includes people that live in the neighborhood, community activists, um, just individuals, families who are supportive of both Reams as a concept, right, but also um, anti-racist and want to commit themselves to practicing that. So there's this rapid response network of dozens of individuals who live right there in the neighborhood who are ready to show up as soon as Zionists show up, right, who are ready to defend and protect the employees, but also the community and the activists who are being physically assaulted by these Zionists. And then there's the other layer of the random passerbyers, right? right. Um, you're at the Fruitville BART station. You're mm-hmm. at the heart of black and brown Oakland. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you have individuals walking by, just going, around, going about their daily routine, and you have these w- mostly white um, male and white women who are showing up, passing out these really hateful flyers against Arabs or Muslims and thinking that giving handing this to a black or brown person, mm-hmm. right, is going to appeal to them. And they oftentimes connect it to Oscar Grant. They think that actually invoking Oscar Grant is in some way going to get them more sympathy. If anything, it's offensive. It so is. what you end up seeing are random individual, random right. community members who live in Oakland who are just do, going about their daily lives, supporting Reem, coming to Reem, saying, what the hell is this? This is flat right. out racist. And mm-hmm. then, and then, and then showing up and coming to eat. And then that's an opportunity to learn. Exactly. 
Exactly. About connections, mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity to get some great food. That's that's the that's the voice of Lada Kaswani. She's the executive director of A Rock. You know, I kind of this may seem like strange connection, but I think of Reams in Oakland kind of like Charlottesville mm. in a way, because as you said, Lada, you know, the Zionists and its connection to white supremacy, they do feel emboldened because mm. now you have white supremacists who who don't even wear masks anymore. Mm. They're so emboldened. They're all in the open. They're, they're out in the open. I and like them better with the white sheets <laughs> because, you know, we can use some of their sheets. <laughs> But that that kind of speaks to this thing that you're well, that you're you know that you guys are talking well, about. Well, what is what is really interesting about this, and I don't know, you know, that these alliances, these strategic alliances that are built between Zionist forces and white supremacists, they're unlikely alliances, right? Like you, like if you think about it at mm. the very ideological level, mm-hmm. but they have one common enemy, they right? Do. The Arab and the Muslim, and so they are uniting much more openly. And so what's happening is that when Reims first got the attacks. It wasn't just by Zionists, right? Like it was about people who are not even connected to the issue um, who are sending me like a good Arab is a dead Arab, you know, and like really, really, really scary and racist. Like this is in the time of Charlottesville. This is in the time that like, you know, in the same week, you know, right across the country, uh, a young Muslim woman was, ran- you know, randomly, right, right. killed by a, a, a you know, somebody who was uninformed, you know, right. like that's what the mainstream media talks right. about. But I'm like, someone is going to get hurt. Like this mm-hmm. is this is the kind mm-hmm. of violence mm-hmm. that's being normalized by these Zionist forces that they're emboldening from these broader white supremacist forces. And so it is a very scary time to be in. And we have to be vigilant about how do we protect our communities mm-hmm. and how do we make Oakland and particularly Reims, you know, because this was a goal that I was set out to do is to make it a real sanctuary space. Mm-hmm. We don't have many sanctuary spaces left in this country. And we if are any. trying to build, right. you know, and in the spirit of what Arab street corner bakeries are in the Arab world, because those are sanctuary mm-hmm. spaces, mm-hmm. right? In times mm-hmm. of war, the bakery is where people go, right? right? That right. is like the, mo- the single most sort of accessible thing. You can't, you know, like inside those right. bakery doors, you don't feel the turmoil outside. And if you, you don't know? feel, you don't feel the safety, you know, in that. I mean, where do you feel safe? But you mentioned a lot. We keep talking about this time that we are in, and this is definitely a unique time. I mean, here, you know, this. I, I was thinking about the month of October, and here it started with the most heinous crime that the United States mm. witnessed in Las Vegas. Someone. Uh, killing more than 50 people, injuring more than... 500 people uh, were injured. Exactly. And then we end the month on Halloween uh, with uh, the uh, terrorist attack in Manhattan. And all of a sudden we see this whole imbalance both in the media and then statements by uh, President Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wants to send the... uh, uh, the suspect to Guantanamo calls for the death penalty. We didn't see this reaction when something like this is committed by a white mm-hmm. guy. I mean, mm-hmm. what's what's the relationship? What do you see? I mean, how how would this affect? I mean, imagine if your bakery now was in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. In, you know, how much uh, you talked about the the threats and the hate. Mm-hmm. How would that? How would, how would we deal with something like this? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not surprising that Trump would um, 
you know, create a different discourse around the two incidents you mentioned, um, both terrorist attacks that happened in this country. But ultimately, we have a white supremacist government, right? And so they are emboldening these individuals. They are emboldening institutions and organizations that are committed to this type of violence. And even right here in Berkeley, um, right here in the Bay Area, um, San Francisco and Berkeley both condemn right. anti-fascist organizing and, and activism, but, at, but do not necessarily directly condemn or say white supremacists are not allowed in San Francisco or Berkeley. They're criminalizing, but using policies to criminalize resistance to anti-fascism. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So even in the heart of liberal Bay Area, we're mm-hmm. seeing this. And so that's where we have to put our attention and focus is how do we shift that within our own conditions here in the Bay where we have more um, you know, potential right, to shift the ways in which people, decision makers, those in power relate to these incidents, but most importantly relate to individuals and organizations and right. communities under attack and create real sanctuary, not just lip service, but actually make it possible and create the conditions to make sure we are protected and cared for in this moment. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go to the action phase. Now, we only have you guys for about five more minutes. So um, let's let's go because our listeners are typically very, very interested in hearing the analysis, but then plugging in. So I'll start with you, Reem, in terms of plugging in. Website. Where can people go to find this sanctuary space mm-hmm. to learn, to eat, to mm-hmm. feel empowered and engaged? Where, where can people... I, w- I want to actually interrupt you here a little bit because uh, first we also have a lot of uh, viewers on Facebook and I'm reading their comments, a lot of positive comments. One comment, what is Manish? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so first I went... Yeah, exactly. Okay, start with Manish so, and how can people yeah. so get Manish? Exactly. Yeah. So first tell yeah, us about Manish. I can plug it, yeah. And, and the first question I asked you when you came, where is the Manish? Yeah. So <laughs> at least you could have visually <laughs> showed yeah. one. Well, and then we talk about... <laughs> gastronomically. <laughs> gastronomically. Yeah. Well, sure. for, for us, but not for our viewers. Um, but some people ask about... Two questions, actually. One asked, uh, what is Manish? Another person said, where, uh, let me see that. I'm going to read it. So many questions, actually. One said, what did Israeli hummus taste like in 1917? (laughs) 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 Well, anyway. Uh, So let's start with the Manish. Yeah, so before anyone else claims that I decided we're going to take the Manish and make it like the next burrito here in the U.S. now. Um, so Manish is the quintessential street food that you would find in uh, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Jordan. Um, it's a fresh-baked flatbed straight out of uh, these beautiful high-heat ovens um, or baked off of a, a traditional griddle called the Saj. Um, and it's most known for having the topping of za'atar, which every... Arab household is it's a staple in their household it's um, a blend of fresh uh, wild thyme sumac and sesame seed I'm a purist those are the three ingredients that go in that mix (laughs) it's a little bit of salt uh, blended with olive oil slathered onto the bread and amazing you um, for us we top it with all sorts of California love as we call it Mm -hmm. fresh vegetables herbs meats cheeses you're making me Um, (laughs) but you can put anything and everything in your heart 
heart desires on a menushe, which is the singular form of menaish. So um, you can find these fresh-baked menaish at Reams Bakery. Um, we're located in the heart of the Fruitvale at the Fruitvale BART station, right under, um, literally right under the platform of the BART station. Um, but you can also find us at farmer's markets in San Francisco and in Oakland. Um, if you want to find our whereabouts, you should follow us on social media, um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. We're at Reams California, uh, uh, at sign Reams California, right. all one word, um, or go to our website at www.reamscalifornia.com. Um, you know, we, um, besides our markets and our bakery, we also cater big events. Um, you know, we love to be part of people's events. We rent out Reams as a community facility space when we're not um, in um, business. So on Saturday nights, Sundays, and Mondays. Um, so please utilize us as a space. Um, and um, one more plug for folks uh, yeah. who have New York connections. Um, this is actually very timely. So part of uh, Israel's propaganda campaign um, that they have every year is that they get um, high profile folks. So in the sports world and um, the food world, um, they bring uh, not only athletes, but top notch chefs in like the best of their um, field all over the world to come to Israel to do these round tables mm -hmm. and do pop-ups in Tel Aviv to normalize the cultural appropriation and the occupation of Palestine. Um, and BDS activists have been trying to go after chefs for years to um, boycott. And we've successfully this year had a Peruvian chef pull out and an Irish chef pull out. Um, so it's gaining some steam, but as part of um, our Response to these roundtables. We're holding our own roundtables right. in New York um, on November 13th. Um, you can go to the ACE symmetrical table dot info um, for information yeah it's called the asymmetrical table dot info um, or look on our social media we have nice. plugs for it but we're going to be I'm going to be uh, co-hosting a series of pop-ups with um, Amani Abdullah who is a um, Palestinian visual artist and chef um, and we're going to be featuring the breadth of Palestinian food from the West Bank to Gaza, and it's going to be wow. amazing. And we're going to have an intimate discussion with chefs and food activists about what are the ex uh, intersections nice. of Palestinian liberation and the struggle for just food systems. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, we want you to be a part of that conversation. Definitely. And just, uh, just a quick comment to our listeners uh, live: we are not taking uh, phone calls on the air. Please post your questions. Uh, on Twitter or on well, Facebook, and we'll okay. ask, uh, you know, no, well, Reem. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lara, tell us about, obviously, everybody knows about AROC, but tell us about how to access AROC and what's what's going on, really, in, in a less than a minute or so. Um, ArabOrganizing.org to find out about what's happening um, specifically at AROC and the work we're doing in San Francisco and beyond. But um, for those of you who feel compelled to take a stand or to put in practice your commitment to anti-Zionism and anti-racism, we'd really encourage you to support the students at San Francisco State University, the General Union of Palestine students, to support Professor Rabab Abdul Hadi at San Francisco State, as well as support the students at UC Berkeley and Professor Hatem Bezian, who've all been targeted um, systemically 
systematically here in the Bay Area for their um, unwavering commitment to liberation of Palestine and have faced similar hate attack, hate, you know, smear campaigns and, and attacks both physically and verbally. And right. so please, you know, do what you can to involve yourself in the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. Do what you can to denormalize Zionism everywhere. Do not engage with Zionist institutions or programs and support those who are at the front lines of defending against Zionist attacks like the students at state and Professor Rabab Abdul Hadi. In fact, just want a, a quick announcement. Next uh, Wednesday, November yeah, 8th, we'll that's going to be the uh, uh, first hearing for uh, yes. San Francisco State University right. and, and Dr. Rabab Abdul Hadi. And the community will be meeting at 1 p.m. in we'll front of the courthouse. We'll talk about that later in the show today. That's, uh, by the way, for AROC's uh, website, that's uh, ArabOrganizing.org. Mm-hmm. Listen, these are two of the most amazing uh, people in the Bay. Is, and as far as, you know, I'm concerned, Reem is an amazing person. Lada is an amazing person. The food is great. The activism is great. The intersection of activism and food is really uh, an amazing kind of intersection that people need to pay attention it's to. The new front of organizing it, it with really all these Israeli food establishments it really jumping is. up everywhere. We really want to fight back. We really want to thank you both for coming here today, and thank uh, you. I'm sure we're going to have you back. This is Arab Talk on KPOO. We're in San Francisco. We're at 89.5 FM. We're going to take a short musical break. We'll be right back. And we're going to end our uh, Facebook Live because we're going to be on the phone with the professor. Professor Bill Mullen from uh, Purdue University. Okay, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. So, Jamal, in the context of uh, our discussion today on Arab Talk about um, white supremacy, pro-Palestine activism, and the attacks on pro-Palestine activists, we're very fortunate to have on the line with us today Professor Bill Mullen. Professor Mullen is a professor of English and American Studies at Purdue University, and his books include Afro-Orientalism, a study of inter-ethnic anti-racist alliance between Asian and African Americans, and Popular Fronts, Chicago, and the African American cultural po- and African American cultural politics. He is, you know, an internationally recognized scholar, an amazing person, and he's been caught up in uh, this this uh, these attacks on pro-Palestine activists and anti-fascist activists. Jamal, in fact, Professor Mullen got a shout out from the governor. Um, Mitch Daniels, which was really kind of shocking to me, Bill. But uh, first of all, welcome to Arab Talk, and tell us a little bit about the context of what uh, got you into the crosshairs of uh, Governor Daniels. Well, first, thanks for having me on. Um, So I teach at Purdue University in Indiana, and since last November, we've had seven different episodes of white supremacist or neo-Nazi groups flyering on our campus. one of the episodes involves someone walking into an academic building and arranging chairs in the shape of a swastika. And last summer, this past summer, as we were seeing a rise of white supremacy across the country, we were seeing more campuses being hit by flyers, including my own, a group of faculty formed something called the Campus Anti-Fascist Network, which is students and faculty trying to 
uh, resist the, you know, the spread of, of fascist ideas on campus, uh, and to defend people who might feel like they were, you know, vulnerable to, to attack. So we formed a chapter at our campus, and our chapter decided to write to the president and say, hey, um, why don't we do an investigation into these, you know, recurring episodes of white supremacy on campus? And the president is the man you refer to, Mitch Daniels, who used to be the governor of our state, and he's now the president of the university. Right. So he was, he responded to this letter from this group by attacking me. And he said first that um, he has had to defend me from attacks from people in the community uh, because they said that I was defending something called Antifa, which I think he meant refers to, you know, uh, some of the groups out there who right. associate themselves with anti-fascist uh, tactics. And in fact, I don't actually have any relationship to that group. Our group is very different. But he was clearly trying to, like, whip up, you know, kind of hatred against me like Donald Trump did mm-hmm. after Charlottesville when he basically went after Antifa and said that, you know, they were they were bad people in that group doing bad things and basically letting the fascists off the hook. So that really took it, took me aback. And then he piled on and said, um, you know, you, I've also had to defend you from people who have done, uh, because you've done things that have been perceived as anti-Semitic. Well, this was just a blatant smear on my pro-Palestine work right. uh, at the university. Um, I'm the faculty advisor for Students for Justice in Palestine. I've given many talks across Indiana in support of Palestinian rights. Um, I've been attacked by Zionists in Indiana, in Indianapolis, in my own campus. And I've had people come and write graffiti on my office door. I mean, everybody at the university knows this. Everybody knows that I'm an outspoken advocate for Palestinians. And so he was just repeating, like, the most vulgar kind of horrible smear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me... It was, like, pretty remarkable, first of all, that you get a group of people who are trying to ask for an investigation into a swastika, then being accused of being anti-Semitic, right? Right. And secondly, that he would then turn around and, and um, you know, basically give these, these fascist white supremacists a complete pass. He didn't even, like, refer to them. So that was the attack. But that's, and, exa- um, but that's exactly what I want you to try to speak to bill because that's that's the thing that i don't understand is how do you go from this hateful vicious symbol mm-hmm. on your campus to you mm-hmm. be, to you being the problem and being attacked by the president of the university help us understand that calculus that kind of how 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 we get there well i, I think a couple things i mean i think first of all we have to understand that uh, there's a there's a tendency right now that comes from the White House on down to try to vilify people who fight racism. Right. Um, that's what my president was doing to me. He was making us the enemy uh, and ignoring the real threat, which was real white supremacy on our campus. Secondly, he was trying to just deflect attention from the fact that repeatedly as these things have happened, he's done nothing. In fact, he has made really, like, waffly statements that, well, we don't really know how to interpret some of these posters when they actually have, like, Nazi iconography right on right on them. And, you know, what it feels like, Jeff, is that you have a university which is really 
willing to protect the uh, interests of, of of white supremacists and throw people who are real anti-racist activists under the bus. And look, you know, the pro-Palestinian activists, we get used to being hit and smeared. Right. But I really thought this was pretty remarkable in the sense that he was almost, he was actually trying to, to use my good reputation against me. And it was pretty disgusting. Uh, also, I mean, I see here a pattern that uh, we've been witnessing, you know, in your case, and of course, uh, locally here in, in San Francisco with the case of Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi and what's going on yeah. Yeah. at uh, UC Berkeley. But I see missing in action uh, those uh, kind of constitutional uh, defenders of, uh, you know, the First Amendment uh, in, in right. this case. But then we have uh, more vocal defenders of the First Amendment when it comes, to, I mean, the Second Amendment when it comes to what happened in Las Vegas, you know, someone murders right. Uh, right. more than 50 people and, uh, and the gun lobby and their supporters are talking about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. But no one is talking about your First Amendment and all the professors and all the academics, the right to, you know, to speak your mind. I mean, what's going yeah. on there with that? The problem is that they don't like what we're saying. They, they, don't like, well, they don't like it when we talk about the Israeli occupation. They don't like it when we say that America's got a white supremacy problem. I mean, they're really protecting the, the, the corporations and the elites and the Republican Party of this country who are doing so much to sustain uh, these awful U.S. state policies uh, in Israel um, that, you know, turn a blind eye to racism on a daily basis. I mean, I, I feel like uh, uh, universities are becoming complicit in something that we, we recognize because we know how long the history of U.S. state support is for the Israeli occupation. But now it's kind of like coming together with another kind of vicious support for another kind of racism here at home. So, I, you know, I kind of see uh, the, the, uh, the support for Israeli Zionism and the support for white supremacy is actually consistent in a way. Um, and I think that's something that we should be very uh, wary of because it puts Palestinian activists uh, like myself and so many other people really in the crosshairs. That we're speaking with Professor Bill Mullen, a professor at Purdue University, who has been recently personally uh, attacked by the president uh, of the university and the former governor, Mitch Daniels, uh, joining us today on Arab Talk. So, Bill, be because of your, your, your unique perspective on this, I mean, the point you just alluded to, there, there does seem to be kind of alliance that mm -hmm. used to be kind of... Um, kind of not on the radar as much between white mm -hmm. supremacy and pro-Israel mm -hmm. forces. It seems now like, just like the white supremacists now who don't wear masks anymore and are free to come out, yeah. those alliances are now seemingly uh, celebratory with each other. Yeah. Is that kind of yeah. where, what you're seeing? No, I definitely am. And I think, you know, I think Islamophobia plays a key role in tying these together, right? I mm -hmm. mean, People who, people who have traditionally been defenders of Israel are the first ones to call Palestinian terrorists, to delegitimate all Palestinian political activity, to criminalize Palestinian speech and dissent. Um, now we're seeing that that kind of politics tied to, uh, uh, again, like a, a legitimation 
of another kind of, of racist colonial set of ideas, uh, which come down really to defending the most vicious kind of domestic racism that we have. And I think at the core of this uh, is, is uh, a deep, a deep, deep uh, political reactionary strain against the Muslim world, yeah. against our Arab brothers and sisters everywhere across the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I thought and I we shouldn't be surprised, really, that we see Zionists and, and white supremacists making alliance around exactly these kinds of politics. I, I want to get your take on the revisionist history that's coming up now about the Civil War. Um, mm. And I wondered if, if it's possible to kind of tie that into it. I mean, you now, have pe- yeah. you now have people in the White House who are saying, well, you know, there's two sides. And sure. uh, we wouldn't have had this problem if there was a compromise. And I, I don't think that most people get how profoundly reactionary that rhetoric yeah. is coming from the White House. Well, you know, I think at the core of it, Jeff, is, and, and at the core of a lot of the neo-Nazi movement in the United States, is a, a narrative of white victimization, right? right. Um, that, in effect, the Confederacy, was a, the Confederacy was a tragic, lost moment in American history. There were good people like Robert E. Lee, who were, <laughs> as we know, defending slavery. But that, 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 the, uh, that discourse, that impulse to turn white people into victims, to in effect erase the impact of slavery, to erase the brutality of the slave trade, to absolutely dismiss the struggles of black people to free themselves. We've really seen this since, the Trump, since Trump came to power. We've right. seen this articulated by different spokespeople. Uh, we've seen them also attack the Black Lives Matter movement, right. defend the cops, defend Blue Lives Matter. It's all part of a of a really, really scary but very clear right wing racist reactionary trend that trickles right down onto my campus. This I'm going to tell you a statistic, and then I'm going to follow up with a question. The I think it was the Pew Research Center recently came out, and they. Um, they, they did a, a polling of uh, basically white people, and they found that 65% of white people feel like they are the uh, subject or the, uh, mm-hmm. are, are, are feel like they are discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I read that, and I said, this, this cannot be true, but I did a little mm-hmm. digging and, and the, read, read about the research, and um, I, I am— Shocked to say that that is a finding that they came up with, and right. I, w- I want you to comment on that because you alluded to it in terms of white victimhood in in this context, yeah. and how that affects you as a professor at uh, at Purdue in the middle of the Midwest. Sure. Well, I, I'll just say one thing. Um, you know, the rise of fascism in Germany was also uh, a white victim narrative. I mean, you had the combination of an economic collapse. And then the scapegoating of minorities, Roma, uh, gypsies, Jews, non-whites, Africans, and suddenly this 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 coming together, right, of, of white victimization, uh, Aryan victimization, with a vicious campaign to to scapegoat. We're really seeing those conditions replayed right now. I mean, Trump has tried to underscore white resentment. Let's build a wall. Mexicans are taking our job. Muslims are coming in. I mean, my God, he's calling for the death penalty now right. for this man, this man in New York. 
or send him to Guantanamo. Um, it's it's the com- it's the it's the combination of people feeling sometimes legitimate grievances about like the conditions of their lives, which right. for a lot of people in America are very poor. Yes, and then tying that tying that to the most horrific kind of uh, xenophobia and nationalism. Um, for for me, I I see this quite clearly in the sense that you know I never thought I'd I'd be I'd see the day when almost every month a white supremacist or neo-Nazi group is trying to recruit on my campus, and the administration doesn't really seem to care. You know, it's pretty extraordinary. So we're speaking with Professor Bill Mullen, professor at uh, Purdue University, and I, I want to say, Bill, has has the president of the university, Mitch Daniels, been held to account for any of this? Where is the, where is the faculty senate? Where are faculty groups? In what's happening on your campus since well, you were so viciously yeah. attacked? Well, the the best thing that's happened locally is that seven uh, faculty, seven women, women faculty and women faculty of color, wrote a really scathing uh, letter that was published publicly and in the local newspaper, which basically pointed out the incredible hypocrisy of somebody trying to accuse someone of racism when they're trying to actually, uh, you know, fight racism on campus. Meaning me and the group of people uh, that, that wrote that letter asking for an investigation. And the letter had, a, I think, a significant impact um, on the campus community and the feeling okay. here. But you, the, the, I, I, I received extraordinary outside support from 450 scholars, labor organizations, uh, Palestinian organizations that wrote a similar letter sent to the president and the provost, really demanding that he apologize for this attack on me. Uh, another letter came from California Scholars for Academic Freedom, uh, my friend David Lloyd, and some others. I think what the president has not given me a public apology. He has I not? Know he, w- he hasn't? He won't. He won't. Oh. He won't. He's a little emperor at this campus. I mean, remember, this is a man who used to be the governor of the state, um, he tends to double down when he's challenged rather okay. than to that accommodate. Fr- that sounds familiar. Yes. <laughs> yes, very familiar. Familiar uh, politic, yeah. I should also link so, that locally to what's, ho- uh, what's happening right here at San Francisco State University, yeah, yeah, where also similarly the president shifted the conversation from attacks on Arab and Muslim students and Islamophobia mm to anti-Semitism. That's exactly right, mm. Jamal. Yes, yes. That, that, that's, that's what happened. That's a really good uh, analogy to what happened here. Um, and I think this doubling down is also troubling, right? I mean, he's been, there have been people on my campus asking him for a year now to come out with clear denunciations of white supremacy, and he refuses to do it. And in fact, each time he does it, he, he digs down deeper and defends the free speech of even fascists on our campus. This is very troubling. Yeah. This is very troubling nationally because we've seen, call, we just saw University of Florida spend half a million dollars right. to, for security so that Richard Spencer, an open fascist, can speak at his campus. Right. We saw University of California at Berkeley provide a platform for Milo and Ann Coulter, you know, really awful uh, uh, alt-right people. So this is a, tr- a trend that we have to be really aware of. It's a national trend 
of trying to use free speech to basically cover for fascist thought, right. and then to criminalize protest, to really uh, crack down on people like myself, Rabab, students at the University of Wisconsin, where they just passed this three-strikes law that says if you protest three different times at campus, you can be expelled. Oh, my God. Uh, so this is, this, these are, these are, these are not, these are uh, difficult times for us as activists. We have to be very alert. We have to continually organize. We have to reach out across the campus to our allies and resist, you know, resist, resist. And this is one reason we formed the Campus Anti-Fascist uh, Network. And one reason that we continue to agitate for Palestinian liberation. I mean, these two, these two projects go hand in hand to me. They're both about uh, trying to resist the worst kinds of reaction and expand freedom for people who, who need them badly. That, that's the voice of Professor Bill Mullen. And uh, Professor Mullen, listen, thank you so much for your courage. And thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be following the um, we'll be following your your situation and waiting anxiously for President Daniel's uh, apology. So I guess I'll be waiting a long time. But thank you so much, uh, Bill. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, Jamal, that's uh, we've come to another close of Arab Talk. It's been an incredible show. It has been, and it's all connected. I mean, this uh, campaign. It really goes from coast to coast as far as uh, delegitimizing scholars like Professor Daniels and Rabab Abdelhadi to attacking a small neighborhood restaurant. It's no different. It's no different. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, happening everywhere, especially on on and around college campuses. And again, stand up for your rights. Stand up for freedom of speech and we'll it's going to be a rough ride for the next that that's why you need to listen three to, years and that's no. why <laughs> that's why you need to listen to arab talk send us your comments to arab talk at kpoo.com and we'll see you next week mm-hmm.